Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Thanks for being here this morning. We're going to talk about unexpected things, kind of like thunderstorms in the morning, snow at night. You gotta love it. I can almost see the snowplow guys just really confused, needing counseling this morning, trying to figure out what to do. This morning we're going to be talking about a, a moment in the text of the Joseph narrative that is high drama. The old man is near death, but he still has the power of the blessing. He still has the power to guide Israel and the authority to do so. And now Jacob finds himself alone with Joseph and his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And what he's about to do is absolutely stunning and it's absolutely shocking. He can barely see. He can barely sit up in bed, but God is still using him and he's still obeying. And he understands that even though what he's about to do is culturally crazy, he understands that God's way is always the best way. How about you in your life? Do you believe that God is working? Do you believe that God is working for your best? Have you seen him working? Or are you looking for him in a box? Maybe looking for him in tradition. Maybe looking for him in the way he used to do things. And now you just can't see him work anymore. And what I want to challenge you this morning is to look at him differently. To understand that God's ways are not our ways. To understand that his his methodology will sometimes fly right in the face of what we think is the best way. But I hope by the time we're finished this morning that you'll be refreshed and excited. That you'll be deeper, more deeply in love with Jesus. Because we can absolutely thrive in God's crazy and unexpected ways. And so we're going to take our Bibles this morning and we're going to open to Genesis. As we begin to come near the end now of the Joseph narrative. Genesis 48 beginning in verse 1. And if you want to grab that Bible in the seat back in front of you, it's page number 45. You can also hop on your Ridgewood app. Jason, thank you for that nice plug about the Ridgewood app. But there are study notes there. You can type your notes right into the app and you can take it home with you, obviously. So let's set up this key point of the narrative. The dream has been fulfilled. The family is settled in Egypt. Jacob is ill, he's about to die, so he gathers with Joseph and his two boys that were born there in Egypt. And so now he's going to bestow a blessing, because he's in the line of the patriarchs. And God had given Abraham this covenantal promise that I am going to grow you into a great nation. And now it's his turn to bless the next generation. But the way he does it, And who he gives the blessing to is shocking. And Joseph was stunned. But it was God's way. Unexpected for sure. But God's way. So look at verses 1 through 4. And we begin to see this story unfold. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. 
Then Israel, Jacob, summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And so the blessing has begun. And what he's doing here with Joseph is he's recounting how God reiterated the covenant with him. Luz is Bethel. And you remember in Genesis where he had this incredible vision of a ladder, Jacob's ladder, of angels on that ladder, and God is reiterating the covenant to him. So now he's reminding Joseph that what this is all about is the covenant of God to create Israel to be great in order to birth Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now it's his time to give a blessing. But he turns it upside down. And we see that happening now, beginning in verse 5. It's just a glimpse of the coming shocking events that are about to take place. Now, your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. So, there's just a glimpse of what's to come. Now, again, this whole idea of the blessing in this culture is a a linchpin to the narrative. You can go all the way back, remember, when Joseph receives the tunic that got everybody so angry and jealous, it's because it denoted him as the one with the birthright, even though he was not the oldest. And so, when you're blessed, when you have the blessing from your father, you get twice the inheritance. So there was a financial stake. There was a a, a cultural idea of honor at stake. But all of a sudden, these two Egyptians, Ephraim and Manasseh, are in the blessing. And even more shocking, replacing Reuben and Simeon, Jacob's oldest sons. And before you start feeling too sorry for Reuben and Simeon, one of the reasons this is happening is because of their disobedience. Because they were murderers. They were rapists. And this is part of the consequences of their sin. But this isn't the way it worked in that culture. It's not supposed to happen this way. It's supposed to be Jacob's sons that carry on the blessing. God had different ideas. So we pick up the narrative now in verse 8. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? And Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here, meaning Egypt. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and he embraced them. This is really quite a tender and beautiful moment in the narrative. You have this old and dying man embracing the sons of Joseph. He had thought Joseph was dead. Now he's embracing not only Joseph but his children. And one thing you can't do is really coast past this without remembering how 
Jacob got the blessing. In Genesis 37, Isaac can barely see. He's old. And what happens? Jacob pulls this ruse with his mother and steals the blessing from Esau by pretending to be Esau. And so you think, oh no, here we go again. But the thing here is there's really no hint of deception. There's no hint of any of that. This is a God-ordained moment. This is God-induced. This isn't the, the meandering of an old man's mind. This is the way God wanted it to happen. But it wasn't culturally the way it should happen. God is not bound by culture. God is not bound by our rules. He's not bound by church tradition. God is not bound by the level of our faith. The prosperity gospel teachers will tell you, if you can just up your faith, then God will be activated. That's nonsensical. God isn't in that kind of a box. God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants to do it. The trick is to submit to his lordship and then notice what he's doing and follow him. And when we see this kind of a text, we understand again that we have to be looking someplace that we aren't looking now to find him. So, again, God was turning the tables. But first, these beautiful words in 11 and 12. And Israel, Jacob said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. This is really, this would have been a good Hallmark movie. And they probably could have stretched this verse into an entire movie the way those movies work out. But this is quite a moment. He never expected to see his face again. And now Joseph is bowing at the feet of his aged father. Reconciliation has come. God is working. And here's what I want to just start with you this morning. This is an important point. God had already worked in shocking and unexpected ways before we even come to this moment. He he, had already gotten these two together. It had been 22 years that Jacob had grieved over the loss of his son. That the treacherous brothers had tried to kill him, and now here they are together. And so God's not in a box. He's not, he's not bound by people's actions. And here's how we know it's unexpected, is that Jacob and Joseph were together. And frankly, that couldn't have happened humanly. <laughs> you look at all of the circumstances that surround this, to make it an impossibility from a human standard. First of all, you had the brothers trying to kill Joseph. They sold him to slave traders. Done. Gone. Out of our, out of our lives forever. No. In fact, God was saying, um, back into your lives, he will come. Jacob is stuck up here in Canaan, starving, famine. Joseph is in Egypt, ruling a chasm of culture, a chasm of distance. Jacob didn't even want to cross the border for fear of what would happen to him to see Joseph. This meeting could not have happened but for the sovereignty of God. 
And so the very fact that they're having this moment of, of beautiful tenderness is, is proof that God is at work. He cares. He is a loving, compassionate God. And these two men and the boys are now coming together in an unexpected way. Now, Jacob, through much of his life, is seen as a kind of a weak man. You know, he, he was deceptive. He lied. He wasn't the greatest leader of his family. But it appears as though by this time in the narrative, he has emerged as a great man of faith. He has not given up on God. Neither of these men have given up on God, even though the twists and turns of their lives could have caused them to walk away from their faith. Don't walk away from your faith. The, the consequences are, are too terrible to even talk about. And when you feel like you want to walk away from God, trust the promises of God. On the dark moments, on the days when you say, I am alone, God is not working. I can't believe what he's thrown at my life. I can't believe these people have hurt me so badly. I can't believe this situation has happened. Don't walk away from God. His ways are the best ways. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God knows what he's doing. He's infinite. He's powerful. He's outside of time. He's absolutely sovereign over everything. So we can trust him. A few years ago, I had this lady that I was meeting with in my office and in the same month, she had lost her father and her son. And she was really grappling with how to, how to deal with this and try to, try to figure out, you know, to get her head on straight and to move forward. But there wasn't any sense of bitterness. There wasn't any sense of, of victim mentality. And she just looked at me and she said, God knows best. And I just kind of looked at her, and I said, yeah, but coming from you, that means a lot, because look what you're going through. But yet, she had this deep-set belief that God knows best. Don't give up on God. And I know, at times, it is really hard to understand life. And it doesn't make sense, and it's not the way it's drawn up. And I think sometimes... I'm walking away from the Bible. This is Paul talking now. I think sometimes we draw this life up for our children that's not even realistic. And we tell them this is how it's going to be. And we prepare them for the events that we think are going to happen. But God throws an entirely different plan at them. And they're not prepared because we haven't shared with them that, you know what, your life may be a mess, but God never changes. And you're going to make mistakes. When did we start being shocked that our children sin? I sin. But when my children sin, it's, oh no. no they're broken people. 
Life throws things at you. It's hard to understand why, why that boy or girl led you on and then just said, it's over, done, and you feel absolutely abandoned. Why that bully just keeps harping at you and you can't get free of it and you, and you go to school, you go online and that person is still just digging at you and you just feel sick inside. Or you're wondering why your children just aren't embracing the gospel even though you pray for them diligently every day and you wash them in the blood of Christ or how you've lost someone even though you've prayed for their protection. You wonder, you wonder why they're taking your driver's license away because you're aging and your independence is being stolen from you. And you say, God, are you, do you understand what's happening in my, my life? Maybe you don't understand how Christians can treat each other a particular way and you've seen things happen and you go, that doesn't appear to me to be very like Christ. Or maybe you just have come to the point where you believe prayer doesn't work at all because nothing seems to change. What I hope will happen this morning is that this particular text will help you understand that there is a why, but we don't always know what the answer to the question is. And so we walk in faith. We learn that as God does His shocking and unexpected things, that we walk with Him. And we praise Him and worship Him and submit to Him, even though we have absolutely no idea what He's doing. This is the way of a disciple of Jesus. God's shocking ways are seen in that Jacob and Joseph are together. That's a miracle in itself. But the real twist in the story is coming now. And this is the central point of this part of the narrative. Jacob's going to dictate a stunning future for Israel. One that Joseph isn't expecting for sure. One that I'm sure the Jewish readers would have gone, what? So let's read it together, 13 through 16. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim on his right hand, toward Israel, Jacob's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near to him. Now, that's the right thing to do. Manasseh is the oldest son. So, Jacob can't see very well. Joseph is lining him up. Okay, moving Manasseh over here, putting Ephraim over here, so that he'll bless the right boy. He's probably going like, my, you know, my, my dad can't see what's happening here. But Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the hand of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from evil, if that isn't a prayer, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Jacob has the authority to bless these boys and to continue the covenant promise. 
that is leading toward Christ. And so he's blessing, but he actually takes his arms and crosses them and blesses the opposite child. Now, imagine if you're Joseph. It's hard to because our culture doesn't work this way. But Joseph is standing there watching this and he must have gone, oh, I had it all planned. I even put them where they were supposed to be. And in fact, Joseph will have a response. But here's the thing. Is the problem with this whole narrative is that Ephraim is surprisingly given the birthright. That goes against culture. It goes against the covenant. It goes against the promise, at least from a human perspective. These are boys who were born in Egypt to an Egyptian mother. What are they doing in the line of promise? This is supposed to be Jacob's sons. Now look at Joseph in 17 through 22. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And I love this. Trying to manipulate, trying to control. He took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way. How many times have we said that to God? I know I have. Not this way, God. No. Not this way, my father. Since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. See, Joseph's in a box. He's in the cultural box. But his father refused and said, I know, my son. I know. He also shall become a people. Manasseh, he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel, will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die. But God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope, and we'll explain that in a minute, that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Joseph doesn't like this. He's trying to get him to you know, do it right. And I love Jacob's patient response. I know, my son. I know. This isn't the way that it's supposed to work. But Jacob was hearing from God. He was obeying God. And isn't that faith? Faith recognizes that life isn't always going to do what you want it to do, that God is never going to walk in your planning center. He's going to do whatever He wants. And faith is believing that He's doing it for the best. And in this text, we see this now four consecutive generations that God has flipped the blessing. You had Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, Joseph over Reuben, and now Ephraim over Manasseh. What, what does that show us? That God's pattern can be totally unconventional. Totally unconventional. And, and, and the other thing is, is that his predictions were right. Because as Israel got settled, Ephraim became part of the northern kingdom dynasty. 
he was greater than Manasseh. And we see Ephraim and Judah as the leading tribes. Judah, of course, then becomes the tribe that births Messiah. So Jacob knew through God exactly what he was doing. There was no mistake here. There was no, there was no dementia. There was just a man who was obeying God, despite the fact that it was culturally crazy. I'm convinced that one of the reasons the evangelical church in America is losing our grip Not reaching people is because we refuse to come out of our convention and do something that will reach culture, even if it seems crazy, even if it seems untraditional. And so what's happening is millennials are fleeing the church. I don't know if you saw this article that appeared in the Star this weekend, and it was specifically around the Catholic Church. How millennials are fleeing the Catholic Church. And at first you read that and you go, well, that's the Catholic Church. We're an evangelical church. But when you read it more closely, it's troubling because the reason they're leaving the church is because they're saying, we don't believe in God anymore. And only 27% of them are landing in another denomination. And so as this group continues to, to grow called the nuns, no affiliation we have to ask ourselves the question, why are they disengaging from church? And how can we develop methodology that will reach them even if it's not comfortable for us? Because I'll guarantee you this was not a comfortable moment for Joseph. So God is working in these unexpected ways, unconventional ways. And Jacob has finally assumed this leadership role that... He should have all along. If you look at 21 through 22, he's telling Joseph, I'm about to die. I will be born, I will be buried rather in the promised land. I've given you the slope. What that is, is Shechem. Shechem is the burying place. Shechem's where Joseph will be buried. It's where Jacob will be buried. It's where the patriarchs are buried. And so what is this again? It's a sign that God has already moved Israel into the promised land before they actually get to the promised land. So Jacob was well aware of the fact that what he's doing here is going to further the promise. And so here's what we're seeing. We're seeing Jacob and Joseph together. We're seeing Jacob's sons not blessed. Joseph's sons blessed. Egyptian. And that Ephraim was blessed over Manasseh. Do not limit God. Do not. When you pray, here's, here's a good prayer. Lord, here's what's on my heart. Will you please do this thing? But God, do it in the way that you think is best. And help me to watch you and then join you. But God, I don't, I don't expect you to do it my way. But please, will you please honor my prayer? when you get too specific or prescriptive with God, you're going down a path that really isn't going to work because God isn't going to stick with your prescription. Chapters 49, 1 through 28 is called the Oracle of Jacob. We're not going to read it here, but I will tell you that in this Oracle, regarding the future, he confirms the perfection of God's plan. And you can read this on your own, but the prophecy was right even though sin had played a part in this clan, God is pushing toward 
Israel's future. So you've heard that saying many times, I'm sure, God works in strange ways. Indeed, he does. But not strange in the sense it doesn't make sense. Strange in the sense we don't always understand it. But Isaiah put his finger on it, didn't he? For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So in other words, I'm not going to be boxed in. But I'm always going to do what's right. So as a church... You know, we're, we're up celebrating. We're celebrating another person that's come to know Christ. We're celebrating getting people baptized. We're celebrating the fact that we've already commissioned 15 community groups leaders since June. We're talking about community groups this morning. We're celebrating coming together as families and connecting. We're celebrating put a, putting a couple on the missions field. But we should never lose sight of the fact that God has our future in his hands. So our job is to submit to his lordship, walk humbly, pray, and then just move steadily forward. And he will guide us. And we can trust that. And if we get a little bit off track, he'll go like this. Whack! Back in track. But we shouldn't be afraid to move forward. And so here, here's the thing. As we go to the Lord's Supper, Just remember in your own life, you may not always see what God is doing. And there can be really dark moments, believe me. And we can remember, though, that God's work in this book is implicit. It's not explicit. God is working behind the scenes, moving the story along. The characters don't necessarily see God all of the time. But God is working. And so while we see these set of circumstances over here... We can say, but God is doing what he wants all along. And for me, that that fills me with all kinds of hope and courage. Because I don't have to be afraid to take the next step. On nights of, of deep sorrow and pain, I can trust that God is not only with me in that sorrow and pain, but that this whole life story that God has written for me, which is a million miles away than I would have written it, is the exact right path. Even considering my own sin and foolishness, God has woven that together and he's paved the perfect path. So isn't that a beautiful truth? Isn't that incredibly wonderful? Doesn't it make you fall in love with Jesus all over again when you realize there's that kind of personal attention, that kind of power, that kind of sovereignty? For me it does. And I hope it does for you too. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for the fact that you never, ever stop working. You never, ever have said, well, I'm done with you. You've sinned, so your story's over. No, you just, you're so faithful. And so, God, I just pray as we come to the Lord's table now, this would be a time of reflection and praise and worship and joy And also a time of submission where we would look at our own lives and we would say, what is it you're trying to do that I am not catching on to because I have this box in my mind about who you are? Will you please just speak to us? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.